Uh, my text is Philippians 4, uh, 10 through 13. So as I'm introducing the passage, you can feel free to turn there. All of us have done it. At one point in our lives, all of us have misquoted, misused the Bible. Perhaps some of us in here have done it with this text, text before us today. If you haven't done it with this text or you think you haven't done it with any other, I'm sure we've all heard someone else do it. It goes something like this. The boxer, listening for his name, bounces up and down on his toes, waiting to enter a darkened arena. He hears his name called and begins the march toward the ring. He looks up at the crowd from underneath the hood of his robe. His heart is pounding with anticipation. As he walks by, the words on his robe flash in the little bit of light that there is. They're hard to make out, but after a moment it becomes clear what has been stitched into his robe. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Philippians 4.13 He gets to the ring and takes off his robe only to reveal the same verse tattooed on his back. He hops into the ring and waits for his opponent. His opponent's name is called. He walks to the ring and to the surprise of the watching world, he too has Philippians 4.13 on his robe tattooed on his back. What do we do now? Both of these men, if you knew them personally, would claim to be Christians. These two men now competing for the same prize in the same event. Both claiming the same power of God to do all things through Christ who strengthens them. And of course, they both want to win this match for the glory of God. They both can't win. How will God choose to whom He should give the victory? The bell rings and the match is started. And we're left to wonder who will win and who will lose. Perhaps you find this story intriguing, compelling, a bit humorous, slightly boring, what have you. Whatever the case, I do hope that we can walk away from this text this morning assured of God's good promises to us and clear in our thinking as we consider applying those promises to ourselves in right context. This is one of the most abused and misused verses in the entire Bible. This verse is consistently applied by Christians to things that may not be bad in themselves to consider them that really have nothing to do with Philippians 4.13. I've done it myself in past years growing up. Apostle, you've done it well in business, academics, athletics. My prayer for us this morning then is that we would, whatever we've, whether we've done it or not, would listen to the Word of God And find this verse not to be some magical ointment to spread over our athletic competitions, our 
academic exercises, our business endeavors, but that it would be a truly life-giving text as we consider what Paul really meant when he penned these famous words. So the title of my sermon then, The Secret to Fighting the Discontent Dragon of Self. I get the idea from a book C.S. Lewis wrote. It's called The Don Shredder. It's one of the books in the Narnia series. In the book, there's a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub. And according to Lewis, he almost deserved it. Eustace was kin to the, the Pevensey children, which most of us probably know from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Well, in the Dawn Shredder, Eustace, Edmund, and Lucy find themselves back in Narnia as they fall through a painting of a ship on the ocean one summer day. Thus they begin the journey, of which I do not have time to tell you, save a small part of Eustace's adventures. But at one point in the story, he finds himself in a hidden valley, finds himself alone. Well, to his dismay, he's not alone. For in the valley, there's a dragon's lair. And a dragon comes crawling out of it. However, since Eustace had not read any of the right books, he was unable to recognize the thing. Once he figured out what it was, though he wouldn't say the word dragon, he thought about running, but he realized that would be to no avail, trying to outrun that monster. Yet before he could move at all, something strange happened. The dragon croaked, fell over dead. After he took a moment to observe from a distance, he went up and touched the dragon to make sure it was really dead. And it was. But then it started to rain significantly. And he was wet to the bone. So he had no choice but to seek refuge in the dragon's lair. Now again, if he had read any of the right books, according to Lewis, he would have known what to find there. But as was said, he hadn't. The books he read had a lot to say about exports and imports, governments and drains, but they were weak on dragons. That's why he was so puzzled at the surface on which he was lying in the cave. After a time, he figured out, figured out what he was on. Treasure! Crowns, coins, rings, bracelets, cups, plates, and gems. And Eustace began to consider what all this treasure could do for him in this new world in which he found himself. He then put on one of the bracelets, although it was too big. It had to slide all the way up to his elbow. And perhaps to your surprise, after finding this great treasure, he settles down and falls fastly asleep. Well, a great fright can leave you very tired. When he awoke... However, he had found out and realized after some time that he had turned into a dragon in his sleep. And Lewis writes, Sleeping on a dragon's hoard with greedy, dragonish thoughts in his heart, he had become a dragon himself. 
Eustace was not content with what he had. And now he was as ugly and hideous outwardly as he was inwardly. If you want to know what happens to Eustace, uh, read the book. For we must press on. If we're going to understand Philippians 4.13, which is a text primarily about contentment, we must understand its context. One commentator aptly summarizes the purpose of the book in the following way. The Apostle Paul appears to have had a number of purposes in writing as he wrote it. Namely, to express his gratitude to his Philippian friends for their generosity. To explain why he decided to send Epaphroditus back so quickly. To inform his readers of his present circumstances and how his imprisonment had, has served to advance the gospel. To indicate his possible future plans including the visit of Timothy and his hopes of visiting them himself. To warn the Philippians of the dangers posed by the Judaizing opponents from outside the congregation. And especially to urge his Christian friends to stand firm for the gospel and be united in Christian love. If we were going to take it chapter by chapter, chapter 1 would be Paul's making his thanks to God known for the Philippians. And he seeks to comfort them about his situation in prison, making clear how that imprisonment has served to advance the gospel. Chapter 2, Paul sets Christ's example of humility forward for the Philippians to imitate, admonishing them to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. He also explains why he's sending Epaphroditus so quickly back to them. Chapter 3, Paul warns them to look out for the dogs who preach against the gospel. He defends justification by faith alone, urging this church to strive toward the goal of the upward call of God. Chapter 4, Paul concludes by urging them to stand firm in the Lord and to get along with one another, rejoicing always and setting their minds on the things above. He also discusses his joy at their concern for him and explains how he has learned contentment in all circumstances and thanks God for their provisions for him. So now that we have an idea, if we did it before, what Philippians is about, let's read 10 through 13. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. There are three things that I want to draw out of this text 
to help us overcome the discontent dragon of self. Three things that I want to see in Paul that will help us fight our discontentment and to apply Philippians 4.13 rightly. They are as follows. First, the reason for Paul's joy. Second, the secret of Paul's contentment. Third, the object of Paul's dependence. So again, verse 10, he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now Paul has arrived at perhaps the main occasion for his letter. So he said there were many. This is a very important one. To express thanks to the Philippians and their gift to him when he was in need through Epaphroditus. In verses 25 through 30 of chapter 2, Paul says that Epaphroditus was their messenger and minister to his need. All through the letter, Paul has mentioned his gratefulness for the Philippians' love for him and their provision for him in his troubles. But he makes it clear that until recently, they really had not been able to show their love for him in any concrete way. They, much like Epaphroditus, longed for Paul's deliverance. Perhaps were even distressed at his situation, yet they were unable at times to help. Yet now they were at a place where they had been able to send Epaphroditus to be a blessing to Paul in his distress. But Paul does not neglect. He doesn't feel neglected. Excuse me. He doesn't feel neglected in any way due to the past seasons or season of dryness. He says that even though they hadn't been showing concern for him through monetary contributions and the like, he knows that they were concerned. Paul's abundantly clear that he understands that the Philippians have been unable to give him any need. He doesn't begrudge them for not sending more money. He's overwhelmed and touched by their generosity and care for his well-being and thankful for what they have been able to give. I want to consider ourselves for a moment with that thought in mind. Have you ever received a gift, whether it be something you really needed or it was just something that someone wanted to show you their love for you, And almost immediately, you think, wouldn't a little more have been nice? I felt this and myself as a child way more than I care to admit. Around Christmas and birthday, my parents loved me and lavished what they could on me. And yet, my sinful heart always wanted to ask the question, isn't... There's not more to unwrap. Don't hold it against the gift giver that more wasn't given to you. Be thankful for what was given. In verse 10, here in Philippians, Paul demonstrates a grateful heart and a right spirit as it regards receiving help and gifts from others. He doesn't lament that they weren't able to give him more. Rather, he rejoiced 
greatly. You see that? I rejoice in the Lord greatly that once again they were able to assist Him at all. But is it the gift itself that truly makes Paul happy? Is that really what he's rejoicing in? It's part of it, but he says he rejoices in the Lord. His joy does not come primarily from his material needs being met. His joy comes from the Lord and from his relationship with the Philippian church. This idea of finding his all in Christ takes us back to chapter 3. We won't read it, but in 1 through 11, Paul um, discusses that which he might have to boast in before God. But then in verse 8, he says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Now, as I said, Paul is counting his own righteousness as loss. But does not material possession also fit into this mindset? If you or I am tempted to find our right standing with God based on what we have materially, should count it as loss. For the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. According to Paul, there is not one thing that he has here on earth to be counted of more value than that he knows the Lord Jesus Christ. Through the peace that comes from knowing the Lord, Paul has learned to be content in all things. So let us turn then now to... Our second point, Paul's contentment and the secret of it. He says in 11 and 12, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. In these two verses, Paul continues to clarify that his joy is ultimately not in the gift. He says so explicitly in verse 17. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. He's not writing, trying to get more out of them, trying to squeeze another dime from their pockets. He's writing to thank them and he wants to see more fruit good works abound in their lives. And Paul can focus on these things. He can focus on thanksgiving and love for the Philippians and not trying to receive more because, as he says, he's learned to be content. What does it mean to be content? question we ought to ask ourselves. It means simply... Being happy with what you have. It's not striving for more, but being thankful for what you've got. Contentment is relatively an easy concept to understand. 
pretty simple. It's not a complex system of theology that takes hundreds of philosophers, thousands of years to figure out what it is. But it is hard to attain, isn't it? Are you content? Am I content? Or are we like Eustace? Just over a month ago, I had quite a bout with the dragon of discontentment myself. And for days, perhaps weeks, it ruined me, wrecked me. I remember after the Gackby conference, sitting next uh, a lunch table with him and two of the other pastors from the conference, them looking at me, and I wanted to talk about anything else but my lack of contentment. But it was eating me alive. It was written on my face. I had come to live upon self, depend upon myself, and the praise of man, even. And I, I craved it. And I wanted more. I should have considered Paul's words. So how does he do it? How is it that Paul could say he's actually not talking about his needs his secret. Well, if you're going to learn his secret, you have to perhaps take a look at his life. Paul is writing from prison. In fact, the majority of his letters were written from prison. He was in chains. He asked the Colossians specifically, he says, remember my chains. I don't want to oversell how poor his conditions were, but they were awful. Prison today is not a great place to be, and I don't imagine that it was much better 2,000 years ago. What else? What about his call to the ministry? His role as an apostle? That sounds pretty cool, right? Well, if you're not familiar, in Acts 9, Paul was on his way to Damascus to persecute in prison, and even perhaps kill Christians. And the resurrected Jesus meets him on the road and knocks him off his horse. Paul leaves the encounter with Jesus blind and in need of care. So the Lord sends him to Ananias, and Ananias is to give him back his sight. Well, Ananias wants to object. The guy's a murderer. But listen to what in Acts... 9, verse 15, the Lord says to Ananias about Paul and his ministry. Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. In Second uh, Corinthians chapter 11, Paul describes his apostolic sufferings. I ask you to turn there, if you would, uh, or um, listen to his description of his life. In Second uh, Corinthians 11, 
beginning in verse 21, second part of verse 21. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship. Through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Paul suffered greatly. And if you're wondering why I bring up his suffering, it's because it's his suffering that has taught him to be content. He knows how to abound and to be brought low. He has learned to be content in lack. His sufferings had caused him to depend on God. It had caused him to live upon God. Paul did not count his life of any value. Rather, he lived for God. And then at the appointed time, he died for God. It's not recorded in the Scriptures, but history tells us that Paul was beheaded for the sake of the Gospel. Well, apparently Paul also did have some times of what we might call abundance. With which he had to leave, uh, with which he had to deal. Apparently, it was in between the beatings. We, as well-to-do Westerners, first-world country, we think lack is the hard thing to deal with. Oh, I can't imagine what people go through, suffering, wondering where their next meal is coming from, and yes, that is difficult. It's hard, and it. If it doesn't produce the right thing in you, can destroy you. But wealth is a very hard thing to be content with as well. It seems that the, the rule is the more you have, the more you want. But Paul says that in whatever situation he finds himself, whether he has little or a lot, he has learned to be content. The word that Paul uses, which is translated learned, is related to the word for disciple. Paul has been a student. He has been taught. He has been trained by suffering how to be content. So for those of us in here who perhaps are struggling with contentment, Wondering when things are just going to click. And all of a sudden, you're going to be happy with what you have. 
Paul's words tell us here that it's not just going to magically happen. We must learn it. Why? What's the secret? And the secret implies that not many people know how to be content. In fact, no one does. Verse 12, he says, I've learned the secret of facing plenty. So what is this secret? In our flesh, none of us know how to be content with what is given. We must learn it. Paul learned it. What kind of contentment was it? I've alluded to this, but I want to spend our last few minutes now addressing this question. Was Paul's contentment, the contentment of a man who had simply determined to muster up the strength from within to stop complaining and to be content with what he had? He had learned life is hard, it's not going to get any better, so I might as well just shut my mouth and stop complaining. Because complaining hasn't gotten me anything thus far. Absolutely not. This brings us to our last point, the object of Paul's dependence. He says that he can do all things through him, that is Christ, who gives him strength. Now, Paul finally reveals the the ultimate secret of his contentment. How had suffering taught him to be content in every situation? Perhaps it's not because mere suffering, as long as you suffer, that's a good thing, but if you stay in your suffering, and you can complain about that, it has got to drive you somewhere. Will it drive you deeper into despair, or will it drive you into the arms of God? Paul was driven to depend upon Christ. His self-sufficiency in chapter 3 has been driven far from him by the rod of affliction at the hand of his loving Lord. He has been driven to utter helplessness and his need of God's strength has been made evident to him. He's been emptied of himself. In suffering, Paul has let go of every claim on his life. Because he depended on God, he could suffer well. He could be content. In John Bunyan's autobiography, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, she wrote, and he reflected upon his own time spent in prison for preaching the gospel. And in his reflection, he comments further upon another of Paul's letters. Um, We... Uh, reference earlier, 2 Corinthians verse 1 and verse 9, which reads, But we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God, which raiseth the dead. And Bunyan writes that this text was of great use to me. By the Scripture I was made to see that if I would ever suffer rightly, if I must, I must first pass a sentence of death upon everything that can properly be called a thing of this life. Even to reckon myself, my wife, 
my children, my health, my enjoyments, and all as dead to me and myself as dead to them. He that loveth father or mother, son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Matthew ten thirty seven. And this scripture taught him to see a second thing. The second was to live upon God that is invisible. As Paul said in another place, the way not to faint is to look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So in conclusion, are you content or has the, drag, the discontent dragon of self devoured you? Are you content with your station in life? Are you content with what you got as a Christmas bonus? Are you content with your looks, teenagers, adults? Are you content with whom God has made you to be? The American dream is a lie. The American dream says that if you just work hard enough, you can be anything and anybody you want to be. You can do anything. Just keep climbing the ladder. The Christian American dream says that Jesus will help you get there. No. No, he doesn't. What you can do is endure all things. You can be content in all things. You can rejoice in the Lord greatly, even in the midst of great suffering. Perhaps this thought comes to mind. Sam, I'm not like Eustace. I don't want a dragon's lair full of gold and treasures. Just a little bit more. Not a lot. I get it. American dreams lie. That's cool. I just need a little bit more. A little bit more, I'd be happy. But isn't that really what the American dream is about? Yes, it's about getting the most. But as long as you have just a little bit more than the guy next door, don't you win? Whoever dies with the most toys wins whether it's by an inch or by a mile. Jesus says that if you are happy with what you have, the one who is happy with what he has because he has God, he wins. So if Bunyan is right, if Paul is right, if Jesus is right, if living upon God that is invisible is the key to suffering rightly, to enduring all circumstances, whether they be good or bad, what is the key to living Upon God. Bunyan's answer, which he got from Paul, who got it from Jesus, is to lay hold on Christ through the Word of God. Prison proved for Bunyan to be a hallowed place of communion with God because his suffering unlocked the Word in the deepest fellowship with Christ he had ever known. He writes, I had never, 
in all my life so great an inlet into the Word of God as now in prison. Those Scriptures that I saw nothing in before were now made in this place and state to shine upon me. Jesus Christ also was never more real and apparent than now. Here I have seen Him and felt Him indeed. I have had sweet sights of the forgiveness of my sins in this place and of being with Jesus in another world. Jesus, sinless Lamb of God, laid down His life that through faith and repentance we might be right with God. And if we are right with God, How can we complain? Find your contentment and your happiness in God through Christ. Do not find your happiness in your stuff or your situation in life. Stop chasing the ever-elusive more. If only you had more, then you'd be happy. No. If only you have is more, you will die in your sins. Paul says, if only you have Christ, you'll be happy forever. Let's pray. Father, I am weak. We are weak. In our flesh, we are unable to proclaim Your Word rightly, to hear it rightly, and to to apply it to ourselves. Help us, God, I pray. Today, this Lord's Day, as as we go from here, may... The truth of Your Word, as inadequately as it has been proclaimed this morning, may it stick in our hearts. May it challenge us, convict us. May it encourage us and build us up that we may live upon Christ and not upon ourselves and our things. Help us, Lord, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.